pick up at verse 35, Luke chapter 22, we're going to begin verse 35 today. We'll be reading through verse 46. You know, uh, my family roots, at least on my mother's side, go to about three miles southwest of the booming metropolis called Evergreen, Virginia. I call it a metropolis being uh, funny because uh, I was doing a little research about Evergreen, Virginia. I looked at the census statistics and 119 people live in Evergreen, Virginia proper. 61 men and 58 women and uh, I am sure I'm kin to somewhere between a quarter and to a half percent of, or, or a quarter to uh, half of the people who live in Evergreen, Virginia. I have a lot of fond memories. I was especially close to my mom's parents. And so often we would visit what we called in the country. I grew up in town. And I loved hanging with my papa. He passed away when I was only 12 years old. I've shared about those stories when we would go to J.K. Hamilton's uh, country store, and it was not a convenience store. It was a country store with a potbelly stove. Uncle John Kent owned it, and we would go in the evening and, and after supper, and we would get what we called the goods that we needed for party, and party was our bedtime snack. And for a uh, party for my grandfather meant either sardines or uh, Vienna sausages, and he actually would drink buttermilk with that. I don't, the only person I know that would do that. And we got some other types of uh, treats for ourselves. But one thing was true about my uh, grandparents. Um, living in the country, we got to do a lot of things. We were free. I, I grew up in town. We, we were restricted. I could walk about as far as from where I am to JD from my front door and I'd be right on a busy street in Appomattox but in the country we could do a lot and one thing we could do is ride bikes my parents didn't want me to have a bike there in town because it was much more dangerous so we left the bicycles at Nanny and Papa's and when we would go down it was about a 300 foot circuit we would make part of it would be asphalt and part would be uh, crusher run and we would go through that and I remember the day my grandfather took the training wheels off and you may remember that in your own life when you were learning to ride a bike and those training wheels came off and you were a little shaky, you were worried if I lean too far to the left or too far to the right, I'm going to fall. You realized you needed to keep your momentum because if you stopped pedaling, you and the bike would fall and you'd have to pick yourself up. You know, as I thought about the disciples in the context of what we're looking today, their training wheels were preparing to be taken off. At the time of the text this morning, Jesus knew that he was going to soon be crucified. And he knew that he, in his physical presence with the disciples, had become a mainstay for them. For three years he had been with them. He was there when they needed counsel. He was there when they needed strength. He was there like Peter when uh, they would fall, would lift up. But he also knew that once his physical presence would be gone, 
the disciples, in a sense, would be left on their own. Now, they wouldn't be totally left on their own. Jesus teaches in uh, John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit would come and would be that comfort to them, would be that source of strength. But he also knew that they had been dependent on the training wheels of his physical presence in their midst. And so as Jesus is looking forward and speaking here, he knows what is preparing to come, and the disciples are not sure. And so in his great love for them, he takes time to give them words of guidance and encouragement for this time of adjustment. Look with me at Luke chapter 22. I want to begin in verse 35 as he gives a warning. Luke twenty-two thirty-five. he also said to them, uh, the disciples, when I sent you out with money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, but now whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a travel bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one, for I tell you what is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. That's enough, he told them. He went out and made his way, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, that is sort of north and east of the city. And the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to your word today, as we're moving in this journey toward our understanding of the crucifixion and resurrection, we thank you, Lord, that you were undeterred in your path. And we thank you, Lord, in the midst of the weight of the world that was coming upon you, Lord Jesus, that you kept along with the big picture, the small picture in mind. That, Lord, the very disciples among whom for whom you would die, you were concerned about them. And Lord, help, and, help us and strengthen our faith that we might understand in the same way, Lord, you care for us, what lies ahead for us, what struggles we're going through. And so, Lord, open our eyes to your great love and care for us as we study your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing again our study on this journey toward Calvary, and you may notice we have made sort of a significant leap from uh, the previous lesson that we looked at last week, and there's a reason for that. In Luke 21, uh, after what we looked at last week, there's a lot of eschatological or second coming material. Now, if you've been with us a while, it was about a year or two before COVID, we went through an extensive study verse by verse in the book of Revelation. We referenced the Olivet Discourse, we, ref we referenced a lot of these things, and we will be 
looking more so at those in the future. However, today, we need to remember our focus is not really the second coming of Christ in this series of messages, but the events that were surrounding his first coming. And, and we're moving as we go next Sunday and as we go toward Resurrection Sunday to the crucifixion and to the resurrection. And so here we see the time is near. Jesus is preparing uh, to go to be crucified. He's with the 11. Judas has already departed. And so he spends this time with the 11 and he begins to teach them not only truths about what was going to happen to him, which he's already done, but he's trying to give them counsel of how to deal in days that were going to be different. In a spiritual sense, and we might say the training wheels of his physical presence would be removed. A lot of the comfort, a lot of the security that they had uh, would be different. But at the same time, as we see in the latter part of our text, that Jesus, having already been in dialogue with the disciples, is in dialogue with his Father. And, and we see in this the struggle of the humanity of Christ as he himself understands what is going to happen and he resolves at that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane fully that he was going to carry out that for which he came. You know, as we look at both the instructions that he's given to the disciples and in the great agony that he came through, the sweat drops of blood and all of that on our behalf, Really, there's a common theme we see in both of these dialogues with the disciples first and then with the Father, and that is this. He loves us and he cares for us. He loves us and he cares for us. Uh, maybe today you're wondering about that. Maybe you're going through a time of extreme loneliness. Maybe you're going through a time where you're just lacking understanding, and there can be that temptation to come, does God really love me? Yes, God does love you. And God loves you on the authority of his word. Christ gave himself for you. And so we see that love as he's engaged with the disciples. I mean, can you imagine what is preparing to happen to Jesus within a few hours and all of the weight of that? And he's stopping and he's, he's giving these 11 instructions. And then he goes to the Father and in the stress and the strife that he's dealing with, he's saying, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he's resolving himself not only to be obedient to the Father, but that obedience coming forth because of his love for the Father and for us. So this morning, as we look at uh, these two parts of our text, his discussion with the disciples in his prayer to the Father, we see really a testament to his love. And I want to look at each of these this morning. First, in verses 35 through 40 and then verse 46 today, we see Jesus' personal care and love for the 11 disciples. Again, Judas was not present at this time. He was on his way to, to betray the Lord Jesus, to turn him over to the religious authorities. The 11 were there. It was just a few hours before Jesus would die on the cross. Yet Jesus is thinking about these 11. You know, you may remember that familiar gospel song that says, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And that was true. And when he was on the cross, you and I were on his mind. In the midst of all of the billions of people who've lived on this earth, he thought of us. But even before he was on the cross, knowing it was coming, we see here that the 11 
were on his mind. Jesus had big things ahead. He knew what was coming. He had prophesied about it three times to the disciples that he would be turned over to the authorities, that he would be crucified and they would rise again. The disciples did not understand it, but Jesus understood it. And so in the midst of this big thing, this big sacrifice that, that was uh, effective for you and for me, Jesus was at that same time thinking about the 11. You know, sometimes it would be like imagining this, a, a, a corporate CEO rubbing shoulders with the average worker in the company. The, the corporate CEO not thinking there's so much going on that you're not important. And that's how Jesus is to the disciples here. But it shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us because the small things are always important to Jesus. There's nothing that we go through that isn't of concern to him. The scripture says that even a sparrow doesn't fall without him knowing it. Think about in the midst of him uh, dying on the cross, what did he do? One of, in one of his seven sayings, he gave responsibility of one person, his mother, to the beloved disciple, John. Think about what we looked at last week in the hustle and bustle of all that was happening in the court of the women as the people were offering uh, their sacrifices or offering uh, their gifts, rather, and their vows and free will offerings. He noticed one single widow. Here with the weight of the world upon him, Jesus is thinking about the 11. And that should encourage us because it tells us that if in the midst of this enormous event in Jesus' life, his death for our sin, all of the way to the sin of the world. If at that point he could be concerned with the individuals around him, then he cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your care on him for he cares for you. Do you believe that today? He cares for you. I don't know what you're going through. It may be a personal struggle. It may be a financial struggle. It may be a time of doubt. It may be a time of hurt, of, of time when you really need healing. It's important to know that Jesus cares about you as an individual. It's good to know that Jesus thinks small. He thinks big, but he also thinks small. You know, as I was looking at the, the text, something really jumped out at me this week and in it's not in the original Bible, the original language, but your Bible, like mine, may have captions for various sections. And mine read this, be ready for trouble. Be ready for trouble. And so what he is doing, and we saw it in our Sunday school lesson earlier today, what was he doing? He was telling the disciples, be ready for trouble, those who would follow him. He's doing the very same thing here today. Be ready for trouble. And, and he references in verse 35 about when he had sent them out earlier. And you may remember it. It's in Luke chapter 9 verses 1 through 5. Very early in his public ministry as he sent the disciples out he said you don't need to worry about carrying extra bags, handbags. You don't need to worry about all of these things because your needs will be taken care of. And so he says, when I sent you out without money bag or traveling bag or sandals, did you lack anything? They responded, not a thing. So at that time, things were easy. 
it was like the training wheels were on. There wasn't a lot of difficulty. They had the security. There would be people, fellow Jews, fellow even Gentiles, who would take care of their needs in that season. But now the training wheels were going to come off. They would need to brace for hardship. And so he says, but now we see the contrast in verse 36. Whoever has a money bag should take it. What's he saying? Sort of look out for yourself. And also a traveling bag. Whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his sword and buy one. What is he saying there? There's coming a time of dis-ease, of unease. It's going to be a period of difficulty and be ready for it. It's not going to be like when I first sent you out and your message is going to be welcomed and you'll be well received. And so he was preparing them. Now, again, in the sword, he's not speaking of, of an active aggression because we know that he himself restored Malchus's ear when Peter covered it. But it was really symbolic of the conflict that would happen. And so he's issuing a word of, con of caution here. And so Hebrews, uh, rather, Zechariah 13, 7 prophesied about this particular time that Jesus is instructing them about. In, in, in Zechariah 13, 7, it says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Then we see that very few in none of them. I guess John, the disciple, was there with him, but the great numbers of them, Peter would deny him. There would be sort of a separation from him. And so times were tough. Things were difficult. They would be counted as he was with the lawless. Yet he would not forsake them. You know, Jesus gives a clear instruction to his disciples here. And he tells them this very simply in his care for them. Pray that you may not fall into temptation. In the midst of everything that is going on, Jesus did what? He modeled prayer because he went to pray to the Father. All right. And he instructed them pray that you may not fall into temptation. Now, with everything that is going on in these next few hours, he could have said, pray for your protection. Pray that you would have favor of, uh, of the people. He could have said, pray that God will, the Father will get you through the sorrow of losing me. But he said, pray that you would not fall into temptation. And what was that temptation? I believe specifically here, the temptation to not follow through with him. The temptation to acquiesce, to give in, to give up. And what he's saying is you need to pray beforehand because things are going to be tough. Things are going to be hard. And you need to pray that you will stand strong, that you will not waver, that you will not give up, that you will not give in. This model prayer that Jesus gave us, lead us not into temptation, is along that same family of prayer. You know, temptation can come to us unawares, can it? That's why we need to stay in prayer. That's God's word to us today. Stay in prayer because temptation can come unawares. Now, you may not can see it from my appearance, but I am trying to watch my diet, and uh, I uh, am working at it. I, I am working at it. And I was doing pretty well back about a month ago, and then we made the trip to Tennessee. As you know, my father-in-law passed away, 
And so many well-meaning people brought dessert after dessert after dessert. And we were in one household. And the problem is from the visiting room where the family was to my bedroom, I walked by and it wasn't a closed door to the kitchen. It was an open doorway to the kitchen. And so my glance would go to the left or the right, depending which way. In, in the morning, there were the desserts. I'm talking like 10 to 15, all right? In the evening, they were there. Next morning, there. Next afternoon, there. And I had strength for a while. <laughs> but what happened is I started to rationalize. I, I would watch those good desserts that had not been eaten over the last 36 to 48 hours, and I said, we can't let those dry out. We can't. <laughs> and it's funny, but it's true. That was how I rationalized. We're not going to let it go to waste. I just happened to be the person that wasn't going to let it go to waste. But that's how temptation works, isn't it? You set out, you're well-intended, You've got a plan, and then all of a sudden, unawares, 14 desserts come right before you. They don't go away, all right? But that happens if we're dealing with anger, if we're dealing with lust, if we're dealing with bitterness. And, and Jesus, right here, the threat again for them would be the temptation to just give up, to, to walk away from this three years that they had, to sort of acquiesce. And so he said, pray, pray that you might not be tempted. You see, we have a propensity toward sin in our flesh. We have that. In fact, the disciples here, it's very interesting. They could not even physically stay awake. God knows we're weak. God understands our weakness. But we need to pray that we would be faithful to God. That God, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to stand with you, regardless of what the world says, regardless of the difficulties in my life, I'm going to be faithful to you. So he says, pray that you wouldn't fall into temptation. But we see also, along with this personal, individual care that he had for these 11 who were going to be going through a time of persecution, of transition, we also see in verses 41 through 44 this prayer that he has with the Father and we begin to see his sacrificial love beyond just the 11, but for all who would believe on him. And so now for a number of weeks, we've been looking at the teachings of Jesus. We've been looking at the challenges that he's faced, the questions that he's been forced to answer and that he has answered. We've looked at the wisdom that he has demonstrated. We've seen what is important to him. And now... He's just a few hours from Calvary. And the scripture says that he was deeply troubled in spirit, agonizing in spirit. The picture we have is just being stressed beyond what we can imagine. You know, Jesus spoke these words that we read in our text today during the Passover feast. And during the Passover feast, I'm sure you're familiar, the family would sacrifice a lamb. And that lamb would be the sacrifice for that family. But that lamb had no idea what was going on. 
it was taken not knowing that it would be sacrificed. In fact, the picture I have in my mind, if you've ever taken an animal to the vet, and even though I'm not a great animal lover, I've taken animals to the vet. And I do like animals, don't get me wrong on that. But I'm not as fanatical about it as maybe some of you. But you know what it's like. That animal doesn't know what's going to happen. So the picture I have is that lamb just head going side to side, everybody but the lamb knowing what's going to happen. That wasn't Jesus. He was the Passover lamb for us. He was our sacrificial lamb. Behold the lamb of God. But he went knowing with his eyes open. I thought back when Abraham was preparing to offer Isaac, and Isaac was old enough to know everything was there, but he was wondering where the ram was. He didn't know that it was intended at first that he would be that sacrifice. And by the grace of God, he was spared. A picture of our being spared is Christ died for us. But when Jesus died, he knew it. So when he is called the Lamb of God, it doesn't mean that he didn't know what was going as a lamb uh, would not know. But what it meant was he willingly went. He did not resist. And we see here the perplexity in his spirit as he understood what was happening. But really at Gethsemane, he was, saw, he was basically resolving the issue, I am going to die. In fact, it could be argued that Jesus died twice that week. You say, well, it's April Fool's. Don't fool me, Rick. I'm not talking about two literal physical deaths. But at the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that he died to self. He said to the Father, nevertheless, your will be done not mine. If it's possible, let this cup, the cup speaks to his death, let it pass from me. But Lord, not my will, yours be done. We see that human element of Jesus here. He would die. He did go to Calvary, but he also died to himself. You know, it's hard for us to understand even that temptation Jesus went through here because it's in a way like ours, but in a way much different from our temptation. I like how John MacArthur puts it in his commentary. In, in, con, in contrasting Jesus' uh, temptation with ours, MacArthur writes, while believers struggle to abandon sin and embrace holiness, that's our temptation, we struggle to abandon that sin, that temptation embrace holiness, Jesus struggled to set aside his holiness and embrace our sin bearing. And his agony was so great, it tells us in verse 44 that his sweat became like drops of blood. You say, that's crazy. It can literally happen. It's something called hematidrosis. It's a condition where internal pressure, so much blood pressure, whatever, can burst the capillaries. And as a result of that, actually, little droplets of blood can come through the pores of the skin. But as I read this part of the scripture, I can't even begin to appreciate the agony that Christ was going through here. Because I don't, nor do you, possess the holiness of God. We can't even, while, while we can be holy as he is holy, his holiness is a perfect holiness. We can't begin to understand 
not only what it's like to, to leave heaven and come to earth, but we can't begin to understand what it is like to be the holy God and take upon yourself the punishment of sin. As I read this part of the scripture, I think of that great hymn written and put to music by Charles H. Gabriel called I Stand Amazed in the Presence. I love the second verse of that, and it's really a reiteration of this scripture text that we just read. It says, for me it was in the garden. He prayed not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own grief but sweat drops of blood for mine. You know the song, sing it with me. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He had to lay down his holiness to take our sin. And it wasn't a trivial thing. And he did so with his eyes open. Again, we can't apprehend it. How marvelous a love. You know, love is being masqueraded in so many wrong ways today. But that's what true love is. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He did so in the obedience to the Father. Your will be done, Father. But that obedience was driven by love, not just for his Father, but for us. He died to self at Gethsemane. And he died for our sins at Calvary. I read the story of a young Englishman who lived a number of years ago. His name was George Attlee. He served on the mission field in a third world country. He was a devout follower of Christ. In fact, he desired to be Christ-like in all of his ways. Historians say that he died at the hands of the natives of that country that he was seeking to minister to. His body was found, and by him was a Winchester rifle, fully loaded, plenty of cartridges. He could have easily removed any threat. We don't know exactly what happened, but those closest to him knew his heart, and they were confirmed, and there's no reason to think otherwise, that this was the thought when this man was being attacked. George Attlee said, if I kill them, it will do more damage to the mission than if I allow them to kill me. Jesus Christ could have saved his life but where would we be? For him to die was to our benefit. He didn't save his life so that he would save ours. How could anybody reject such a great love? Again, if you have the words, the, the, the middle part, the insert in your bulletin, at the very, if you know those words we just sang, sing them again. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you right at the bottom of the conclusion are the words to that song. Just the refrain. You'll turn with me right at the bottom. Sing it with me. 
How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Let's pray. Father, no greater love hath one than this, that he lay down his life for his brother. Father, we thank you that Jesus laid down his life for us. We thank you that he took care of the big picture, the sin problem, and all the way as he was going there, he had individuals on his mind. Lord, you care for us. Keep us mindful of that. Father, if there be any here today who have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray this day would be the day of salvation. Father, I pray that we would be instruments of that love to others, that people would see Christ in us. And Father, we lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how God has spoken to you today, but if God is speaking in any way,